David Tomas Martinez is the author of two collections of poetry, Hustle and Post-Traumatic Hood Disorder, both from Saraband Books. Martinez is a Pushcart winner, Kento Mundo Fellow, a Brad Loaf Stanley P. Young Fellow, NEA Poetry Fellow, and NEA Big Read author. Martinez currently lives in Brooklyn. David Tomas Martinez, uh, welcome to the creative process. Thank you for having me. So uh, we're big fans of your uh, poetry. I think we're just going to go right in. You have a one piece to to read for us. Yes, uh, I'm going to start with, or I'm going to read the only Mexican. So uh, the only Mexican is for my first book, Hustle. It's also a very emotionally resonant poem for me. Um, because it's about my grandfather who's dead. It's about my family. All of these uh, back home, California, all of these are very important to me. So the only Mexican. The only Mexican that ever was Mexican fought in the revolution and drank nightly. And like all machos, crawled into work crudo, letting his breath twirl and clap and sing before sandpaper juiced the metal. The only Mexican to never sit in a Catholic pew was born on Halloween and ate his lunch wrapped in foil against the fence with the other Mexican. They fixed the old Fords where my grandfather worked for years. Him and the welder Juan wagered each year on who would return first to the Yucatan. Neither did. When my aunts leave, my dad paces the living room and then rests like a jaguar who once drank rain off the leaves of Sacopria trees, but now caged, bends his paw on a speaker to watch crowds pass. He asks me to watch grandpa, which means for the day. In town for two weeks, I've tried my best to avoid this. Many times he will swear. And many times, Grandpa will ask to get in and out of bed, want a sweater. He will ask the time. He will use the toilet, frequently ask for beer, about dinner, when the Padres play. Por qué no novelas? About bed. He will ask about his house, Grandma, to sit outside. He will question while answering, he will smirk, he will invent languages while tucked in bed. He will bump the table, tap the couch, he will lose his slipper, wedging it in the wheel of his chair. Like a small child trapped in a well, everyone will care. He will cry without tears, a broken carburetor of sobs. When I speak Spanish, he shakes his head and reminds me he is the only Mexican. That is just so powerful uh, on so many levels. Um, it's something to do also with your grandfather 
not all of your family were born born in Mexico. There's something like this, like uh, about the story. Yeah. But I just love just I think it can speak to so many people. We think when someone is old and we think of they they still have all these stories, all these years and this kind of coiled power and the imagery of that and the jaguar. And like there's a king inside this these accumulated years. We don't always respect that. But just tell us what it means and some of the stories that are compressed so beautifully in that. I mean, definitely the poem, one of the themes is diaspora. And I think that's something that can resonate with many people, especially in a place like the United States, where you have all of these people in general that are coming from different places. Uh, and it's, you know, whether or not how true it is, America likes to think of itself as the melting pot and as a place of um, amalgamations. And so I think that is something that, resonates with other people and it definitely being myself Chicanx, Mexican-American, my grandfather born in the Yucatan and his subsequent brothers and sisters were born in different parts of Mexico until I have family now uh, still in Tijuana uh, but all of his children were born in San Diego in where I'm from Southern California and so there is without a doubt the sprinkling of diaspora through the poem, but also though, I think that like the power, the generational power and the way that we consider each other. And I think that right now that's particularly, it is always, but it feels very poignant at the moment where people seem to be simultaneously in awe and flustered by millennials and Gen Z and like, you know, like the whole whatever boomer sort of. And I think that like, these are these generational differences are exasperated at the moment because of technology and communication and uh, and I think that there's real a real pushing on the boundaries that hasn't happened maybe since the 60s this this tension between generations and I think you can feel that in in this poem that there's that the older generation my grandfather and you know the culmination of the poem being you know I'm the only Mexican because I was born in in Mexico you know and um, everyone else not measuring up to that so um that's a theme and as you said the sort of coiled reticent power that age and disease uh, at the end of his life my grandfather had dementia and he was confined to a wheelchair and um which was quite the opposite of how he was my whole life he, he was a tough man i saw yeah he had uh, 10 children and i have 10 aunts and uncles and quite literally i saw him chase every one of them with a machete at some point in their life so, like he's violent and all of these and to see the the contradiction for me the irony of of a man who lives by his strength lose so much of that strength and it sort of come to define him was that lack of strength in the end while there was still strength it was it's difficult to see the aging process yeah, it's you conveyed it so well, and and then when you say, I want to ask him so many questions, um, right. but he, yeah, he would have a, an idea of, uh, you know, what is a Mexican, what what is a Mexican yeah. for you, like that whole what it means to you. But there's one thing I wanted to, which I thought was so moving, which you have said is that, and it's something to do with finding your voice, or I I don't know when that happened where you felt like you really settled into this is me instead of maybe trying to be like this kind of or this that. right um, and it is something I thought is so nice is that you hold on to who you are when the world is trying to change us and so when did that happen for you well I think to a certain extent that's happening to all of us at all times you know you have a sense of who you are and then you have that reflection by other people 
you have a self-reflexive idea of yourself and then you have that what uh, how other people treat you and you're like sometimes they do not match up i don't know i feel like the trick is believing you are what you are while also having a certain amount so it takes a certain amount of ignorance but a certain amount of self-awareness to be able to change to become who you want to be <laughs> if that makes sense so for instance say like you're talking about in the writing process you have to believe that you have the ability to be a great writer and even believe very strongly in your strengths while understanding that you are not. And how one balances those two is important because if you truly do just are like, I'm an awesome writer, uh, you're never really going to become the writer that you can be. There's no such thing as being a good writer, a great writer, or something like that. You're always in the process of becoming, you know, and you're always trying to be that. Uh, it's sort of like I try to I try to think of things analogously, and uh, one of it is like think of like a sports team or whatever sort of you know every year there's a champion, and whether or not you win that championship, you have to go back the next year. And I feel like for me, every poem, every book is a season. And so at the end of that, I may have been successful. I may not have been, but regardless, I have to move on to the next season. And so like this, then it's that idea of process and continuing uh, the work without really excuse me, having an idea of what you want to do as a goal, a culmination, but that, that goal and culmination not being the ultimate destination. It's really the process. That's a synthesis of many different philosophies, but yeah. I love how you talk about kind of your writing process in your life coming in seasons. Like, can you tell us a little bit about maybe like the season you're in right now versus your season one and like how you've kind of progressed in your writing and how poetry has been the vehicle for your self-discovery and realization? Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that's something nice. I appreciate that. But I also, you know, I don't ascribe to the idea of like, I do and I don't like people are like poetry saved me like you know what i mean like I, I don't like to be hyperbolic in that way you know what i mean like for me education definitely saved me it, it, i had a very urban working class i was very much trapped in a specific milieu in a specific discourse and without education i wouldn't have been able to look i wouldn't have been able to expand my discourse and so i wouldn't have been able to know anything much more then my neighborhood, my country, uh, my language, all of the things that I was familiar with. And it was a very limited scope. So without education, I wouldn't have been able to do any of those things. And for me, poetry comes into that education because that's where I learned poetry was in college. I didn't consider myself. I went to college to play basketball. I went to college for athletics. I, at 21, I was a father of two. Poetry is the furthest thing from my mind. But as I got there and people started to tell me, hey, you're sort of good at this poetry thing, I started to see it as something I could do. Um, and, I, and it became something that, it was something that I could develop. So as I said, they're all sort of intricately wound and really tightly put together. So it's hard for me to like unwrap one piece of it, you know, the poetry, the education, my growth as an individual, by just seeing more of the world, you know, I mean, I probably, if it, if it wasn't for poetry, I wouldn't be able to travel. I wouldn't be able to meet the people that have been able to meet. I wouldn't have done the things that I've done. And it doesn't make me sad, like to be like, oh man, but I, but I definitely, like without poetry, I wouldn't, I'd be missing out on a lot. 
it's interesting um, how it's hand in hand with life. I don't think you can separate it. And I think some of the things that maybe you alluded to, you know, in terms of when you were growing up, you put yourself into, I guess at the time when you're growing up, it's kind of exciting or dangerous circumstances, or maybe it just seems like it's what's going on. I mean, but it's, it's both. It's yeah. both. I felt like I was in, I'm going to be honest with you. I felt like I was in a movie. You know what I mean? Like I thought I lived, I was living like this movie idea of things and like, there'd be gunshots around you and you pat, 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 and you hear it hitting like the concrete and you're like, Oh, you're like, Oh shit. This is like, you know, like seriously, I, I didn't think of it as real life when you're young. Like the idea of, you know, I'd known people that were killed early. You go to prison, like these things just felt like matter of fact, and they tend to be this part of life and you just accepted them. When I was younger, I never really thought of living past 25. I thought that's about like, that's about where you get to be and that's it. And you know what I mean? And you live and you do what you're going to do and you have fun and you try to make a mark as quickly as possible. It goes to uh, the only Mexican. I mean, also, uh, and what's kept from us from our previous generations, I, I don't know, your grandpa seems pretty, have been pretty tough too. <laughs> it can seem normal, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, without a doubt, you know what I mean? And you had this, you had to be, I think, the circumstances of his life and um, and the circumstances of people's lives around us, um, everyone sort of had that idea. And I mean, that is something that I still struggle with is being able to navigate various social stratums. You know, in the same day, I could go to a gala where I am a honored guest or I um, purchased a seat at a table. And earlier that day, I'm in bed in the hood, hooping, you know what I mean? Talking in a much different fashion and to much different people than I would later in the day discussing aesthetics at a benefit or something. Uh, I still struggle with these things at times. You know, what's, what is the authentic self? Who do I want to be? Who am I? What is an acceptable level of each social sphere to bring into the other? Those are things that I can sort of struggle with still. I mean, they're difficult to navigate, so. Well, it's interesting that conflict and that interplay, um, I don't even want to say conflict. It's kind of- a- That's in my work though. That's attention. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's attention. And you can see that in the in the various registers of language and the mixing of the Germanic and the Latinate, the banging against each other that I do of these high and low registers, quote unquote, and these sort of disparate, in some people's minds, themes and sounds and things that wouldn't necessarily put together. That's sort of my life. And so I, I try to reflect that. Well, it definitely wakes us up. I think that for me, for this barometer of what's good art, it's like, it wakes me up. Okay, this is fresh. Right. And, you, and but like between silence and sound or the beauty of slang, I'm so happy that we've come to a place now where we can appreciate, we can appreciate the beauty of slang. Like yeah. it's juicy. It like is a live living language. I agree. I agree. I agree. And I mean, that gets back to uh, the question about developing one's voice. And initially I wrote metrically as an undergrad in college. And then as I began my MFA, my first year, I was considering, am I going to write, you know, blank first or some version of ghost meter, or am I going to just go and completely drop the line and, you know, do free verse, which was a very sort of, now I see a naive and antiquated 
thought, but at the time it was something that I was seriously, seriously considering. And I say it's antiquated in the sense of that one doesn't have to do that. One can do whatever they want. If they want to write sonnets, they can write sonnets. And if they want their next poem to be this little imagistic free verse joint, that's what you can do. I was thinking of it in such like such a, a rigid manner as if one is a formal poet, they must be a formal poet. And like there is no wiggle room in that. And and as I began to write a little bit more and began to think a little more deeply about what is and what could be my place in the poetic tradition, I began to feel more comfortable with pulling from every aspect of my life. And so that's where this slang starts to come in. That's where like, there are those whispers of ghosts. It will fall in and out at times, not always, uh, into the metrical, into meter feet. You know what I mean? It's like something... I necessarily even try to do it. It's just I've worked so hard on on metrical poetry. It just sort of it becomes imbued within one. It's nice that it also feels natural. I mean, in a different medium, but relating. Like I really enjoyed that television show that uh, David Milch created, Deadwood. Again, it's mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that, but it plays. I've seen a few, yeah. Yeah, and it's that that beauty because it's it's very real too. So it's not yeah. lost in the formality. Well, I think in a show like The Wire does that as well, where you have the perspective of the drug dealers, you have the perspective of the cops, you have the perspective of city officials, and you have all of these mixing of of the languages, the mixing of the social spheres. It definitely is playing with those as well. I'm trying to think of another, The Watchmen, you know what I mean? Seemed to like playing with the idea you have, like, I thought one of the most interesting things about The Watchmen series, which which was, it was, it was really good was that, for me, um, the last episode was, I thought, uh, a little suspect, but all through was was really tight, um, was that if you watch the Watchmen movie, and then for those that followed the comic book, you had an expectation of what the Watchmen was going to be. And then the TV show, in this way, was very much ekphrastic, because you had it played off of the original movie and the comic book without being the same thing. So, which is, I also think is sometimes uh, is when ekphrastic art is not as successful as it could be is when it's just a reflection of what it's always. I don't want to like hear your, like, here's, here's your telling of this painting. Nah, I'm not interested in that. I'd rather go watch, I'd rather go look and sit and think about the painting versus your like, oh, description of the painting. The the ekphrastic art that does the most for me are the say a poem when it talks about a painting and it introduces a new idea and it brings something different to it that I would have never considered. And that's like the difference between the Auden and William Carlos Williams, Icarus Fall uh, sort of uh, depictions. It's like, you know, William Carlos Williams just describes the painting. Auden talks much more about like the experience and he brings something new. Anyways, uh, (laughs) back to Watchmen. (laughs) Watchmen, really played off of these ideas and it changed so much and it made it relevant for today's political ideas and difficulties, but it still was deeply rooted in that world. And just all of those like textures, it was good if you never watched The Watchmen, I felt it was even more layered if you had an idea of it. And so like that for art and being able to layer and texture in that manner is... 
You know, and it's so beautiful because I think, I mean, we all have these kind of things that we look for and what we say, oh, that's a good piece. And we all have different judgments of what mm. is a good work of art. But I think when it engages the mind and then you're trying to work out the puzzle, but you're still so swept away with the story, it's not yeah. still long enough for you to figure it out. I mean, that's always yeah. what I'm really happy. And I'm thinking about motion and stillness in Hustle as that metaphor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, th that I get from Simone Bay, which... You know, she she likes to talk about that motion and rest and that idea. It came out in so many different ways, thematically in hustle, and that reached to post traumatic hood disorder. And I mean, that all reflects too how I've changed and and grown from hustle. Like hustle was written over a ten year period, approximately. You know, I had poems in there that I had written like or parts of or the genesis was in ten years of of a ten year writing process. And then some of them, you know, just barely made it in a book and I had made written it within the, the, the year. And so like, it's so much focused in the past and so entrenched deeply in my memory and reflecting upon who I was. And post-traumatic hood disorder was more, much more in the, at that time now in the present. This third book I'm working on, I'm not sure. It's got a little bit of mixture of everything. There's something in the future, there's, there's past, there's present. So reading your poems like The Only Mexican and Love Song, it's really clear to me that you write a lot about the personal things that happen in your life, like people mm -hmm. you've met, your family, yeah. the places you're surrounded by. And I also noticed you talk a lot about like New York City is such an important part of your identity as an mm -hmm. artist based in the city you're always able to absorb and interact with so many different people and cultures yeah. and lifestyles. And you're also able to share your own experience in that kind of vibrant space. You're riding the subway and it's referenced in your yeah, poem. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel your surroundings impact your writing? And have any poems been very specifically inspired by just your lifestyle living in New York City? Well, the slash A train is it's a New York poem in the sense that like it was conceived on the train. I, and I tell you a backstory. Do you want me to? I'll read that poem quickly. There's an interesting story behind it. And yes, and you know, psychologically, I feel like I'm very bi-coastal, which goes, which works with my themes in my, in my work and how they jump and they smash all these things. And in some ways, I'm inextricably Californian, Southern Californian. And then in some ways, I'm very inextricably a New Yorker now. Having, you know, So this is the slash A train, the A train. A honey badger's skin can withstand multiple blows from machetes, arrows, and spears. But these rusted weapons haven't killed anything in years. So that may be the lesson there, that there is no there there, like many poems, like many revolutions. And maybe there isn't a there there in many people, only that foggy anachronistic lizard eye, or what I have come to call the part of consciousness that builds impediments, isolates, the super Trump, or what New Yorkers call subways, or what a king calls a dream, or what X called Y, what the crowd yells as lit, the cave calls dim. Jose, can you see in West Tejas a fancy evening out is rocking on the porch? Ain't they good at irony? 
we're watching the fugitive moon run away takes days like the time i caught the sea i hoped was an a and saw a butterfly move in what i can only say is protest the wings made small combustions through the car eyes trained the awful is tracked by awe an officer lifts his gun yells to raise your hands higher the tv flutters watch it they will call you moth and kill you so one at that time when i wrote this there was an attention by the media on the killing of black men by the police uh black and brown men but specifically black men and when it happened in florida the police officer shot the man the man was a caregiver for a uh, I believe a developmentally disabled adult. He shoots him. The black man asks, "Why did you shoot me?" And the cop says, "I don't know." So this is floating in my head all day. This story. I'm just like, this is like many of the people around me. I was very angry, and I was partly angry not only by what was happening, but by the fact that I've lived with this reality my whole life, and that now the media was paying so much attention to it and making it like, "Oh my goodness, what's going on?" Like I'm like, "What are you talking about?" This has been happening. This has been a reality for many of us. You know, I'd been pulled over in my youth and having been in a gang and, you know, I mean, I was up to stuff. So to a certain extent, I kind of accepted it. But as you get a little bit older, you remember car stops where there's four or five men in the car, black and brown, and the elaborate way that they would make us get out of the car. Uh, they would tell things like, they'd stop the car they bring a helicopter and then they'd have like a bullhorn and they would say passenger reach over the driver and pull out the keys you know and you'd have your left hand and you'd have to do all of these movements and then they they drop the key and one person would have to climb over the other there was all these elaborate manners for you to get out of this and they sort of normalize a dehumanization via process of exiting the car that to me was all that's all part of this brutality that happens this is much more a psychological brutality than a physical brutality you know so all of these were circling in my head these spotlighted police brutalities but i'm living in new york and you know where they had had quite a few themselves and i'm on the train and i'm despondent i'm frustrated but one of the things having moved to New York City I didn't I think New York City has the reputation of having a bunch of like there's just a bunch of mean people that live here and you know because you're sort of paying attention you're just doing your own thing you're walking and you're not like hey every hey you know everyone's not talking to each other but there's a real camaraderie that comes with living here in New York City I think I think it's just you know you there's 10 million people you got to got to sort of look out for each other uh and people will do some nice things for each other all of the time there's these little kindnesses that happen the dropper wallet somebody be like hey excuse me you dropped this or a credit card it's happened to me many times and i'm like oh my goodness thank you and i try to do that for other people too but we're on this train it's rush hour i got done teaching and i was it's a long train about an hour from uptown back to brooklyn and this train is filled and this butterfly comes through the train in rush hour filled with people and i saw the whole train just sort of there is a specter of beauty in the train and just for a moment everyone just looked and was like wow 
Look at that nature. It's beautiful, right? You know, I saw people looking at each other. And somebody's on the pole and just turns around. I don't think the person saw what they were doing, but they turned around, this young man, and sort of just like went and just tried to swipe at it. And I swear he missed. But this whole train went from being like, oh, to whoop, and I thought they were going to charge this dude. Everyone was like, what the? And he was like, oh, and you could see the energy. I mean, you could feel it, and he could he could see it change. And he was like, hey, yo, sorry, I, I didn't didn't see. He was like, ah, I didn't know what I was doing. I thought it was like a like a moth, you know. And I was like, oh, think I'm going to keep this little moment. Now he didn't say moth, but he was like, I, I thought it was a bug, you know what I mean? And, which you know is funny in itself because a butterfly is a bug, right? <laughs> our interpretation of it but it was that moment there and the way the train just switched and this talk about motion and rest right you know and and that really resonated with me and it stuck with me and I was like oh okay I'm I'm gonna put that into a poem and I started this poem and then that came out at the end you know and they'll kill you and call you moth you know so you have to remember that you know you're a butterfly even if they want you to be a moth that's much more cheery the whole idea of like you're a butterfly but like you know what I mean? <laughs> then the poem yeah. the poem necessarily somehow i knew that there was a story behind that phrase butterfly in protest because that image of a butterfly fluttering through a train is just so visceral it's what grounds the piece and i'm glad that you told that story it's just really powerful and it is a moment that sort of slows down the piece, right? You have that. It's, a, it's the first real sort of placement. I mean, there's other placements, but it, the poem jumps around so quickly via syntax, via place, via like just ideas. It's so quick paced. And then that's the very first place in the setting of the poem that really sets the poem in a, in a specific time and space, which is also reflected, if you look a little closer to, by the shorter sentences, by a little less enjambment right there. It all tends to really slow it down. I think that's very um, keen reading by you. Hello, my name is Yu Young Lee. I'm currently a sophomore attending Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and I'm studying English. I remember reading David Tomas Martinez's The A-Train and seeing so clearly this butterfly in the packed subway, drifting softly with the rattling of the train carriage. To learn that this scene is from experience made me look more closely at how these brief collisions with nature often guide us to understand something more profound in our own condition. For Martinez, that the careless, or even simply the clumsy, will mistake a butterfly for a moth, a living entity's motion, a fluttering as natural as the transit of the subway's harsh, for hostility. That for some, a black man's existence is reason enough to shoot. The image is so rich that I find myself thinking of butterflies often when I'm riding the train, wondering about the butterfly, of course, but also of people's faces and what they look like when they are witnessing that specter of beauty, and whether it is inevitable that someone will miss it. I recently had my own brief collision with nature. It was not a moment, but rather an accumulated moment. 
At the beginning of this year, someone gave me a succulent, or what one day would be a succulent. A skinny green stem, the size of a penny, with barely two leaves. It was a tiny fraction of the giant plant that had been growing for years, and it clipped off with a slight twist of the fingers. She assured me that it would grow, that the dried brown edges would turn green and balmy in the summer, that all I needed to do was plant it in soil, put it in sunlight, and give it a good soak in water every month. So I took it home, found a small little pot, and did just that. For the first few days, I couldn't help but pick up the stem just to see if anything was different. For almost a week, nothing. And then I saw roots. And after letting months go by and letting it be, the barely two leaves are now a dozen. The dried brown edges are green and balmy, and the stem is the size of my pinky. My succulent is small, but it is no longer a fraction. It's a whole number. And even now, as I dream of more green, some part of me wishes to give a skinny stem to another who wishes to see a piece becoming so whole with the right care, attention, and faith. Thinking of this magic with succulents, I'm reminded of multiplicity, a word that I didn't realize needed to be included in this conversation of diversity, inclusion, representation, the idea of an abundance of voices, of there being more than placeholders and quotas, was something Martinez emphasized. And I am more than convinced that we can reach empathy and truer understanding of each other by nurturing and giving the space to more hopefuls in any field, sharing that magic so we can witness it all together. Thank you for listening. For those of you just joining, Mia Funk and I continue this interview with poet David Tomas Martinez. It's interesting, you know, about butterflies or moths or mm-hmm. anything like that, because who decides what is beauty and what is, <laughs> you know, what is high culture or what is low culture? Yeah. It's very interesting to unpack that. It's changing in many ways that we haven't quite got that. I mean, if, if a pigeon was stuck in a train, I'm sure people would not have had the same reaction. So No, no, without a doubt, without a doubt. But I think, though, that, that we always have to wonder about, like, it's not so much that high and low culture changes. What changes is what becomes appropriated into high culture. And so, like, the appropriation never changes. You know what I mean? The high culture is always looking for new blood, so to speak, new infusions of energy. And eventually whatever whatever is outside of high culture or the canon becomes infused into it and then becomes a little less exciting <laughs> so to speak so like you know we see that with music we see that you know with with anything that's on the periphery that it becomes taken in that part doesn't change what is considered high and low does change them when you said pigeon and i just well, I, we want to hear more of your recent works. I'd love if you, because we were talking about, you know, mm-hmm. poems sure. set in New York or maybe, you know, being a father or these are things. I want to hear that. But it just reminded me going back for the love song. And I'm thinking about pigeons and, you know, I'm still a dove. I'm just thinking about these different contrasts. Yeah, yeah. Love song. That's a little quirky poem that cracks me up. Do you want me to read a, a new poem right now or... 
Yes, but we could also read love song because I know that that's a favorite. You want me to read love song? Okay, yeah, I both. can read that. That one's long. <laughs> or a section of, you know, whatever's good. Okay. It's, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, it's up to y'all. Like, this is your, hey, you, you drive. I'm I'm in the passenger seat telling stories. Best <laughs> place to right. be. Yeah. <laughs> that is the best place to be. <laughs> um, all right. So I'll read love song. Love song. Though I am more Che than Chavez, I'm still a dove. And I do not apologize to you or to the state of California, the IRS, New York, that administrator I bit in the third grade who was delicious and sweet. I owe so cold. In the mind, the Dionysian defiles walls the Apollonian protects. I am always looking to take something down. Usually it's me. Two bulls stand on a hill. The younger says, father, let's run down and fuck a cow. The father, wiser, longer in the horn, higher on the grass, reminds his son how Moses was also horned, beamed with light, that to handle a massive snake, to charm Pharaoh, to steal fire, to fly, to unzip the sea is to speak and not tap vanity. Moses descended Mount Sinai with cracked slabs and saw a golden calf. The father said to the young bull, no, son, let's strut down and fuck them all. Thus begins the beef between bird and bee, the isthmus isolating order from chaos. My mind is made up of so many different cuts of meat. At parties, my favorite icebreaker involves asking strangers to describe themselves with three words. Their descriptions are a slipping away to change clothes. Sometimes I feel like the woman rambling among the vapors escaping the ground in Iceland's volcanic canyon, making a bust an M-dash in a rest stop where some 50-odd persons searching for themselves in true existentialism are yellow lupines growing on the side of a road. An epiphany cannot be achieved, as a cedar waxwing cannot become more cedar qua waxwing. Eventually, what we're looking for appears. Sometimes incitation opens at the bottom of a straw, a spoon, a barrel of wine. The windfall happens while eating for folly, while flipping through the autobiography of a brown buffalo. At the moon, me, the animal, roosts atop brownstones, sin vergüenza. Upward, our eyes scamper a reflex action when inserting an object in the mouth, even when the object is a gun. Over heels a road erodes the way home. Only after the Coast Guard has readied a helicopter do we descend the cold volcano in Elja to realize we are the woman in the search party looking for ourselves. In moments of ecstasy, we are lifted to poetry. 
at the shore of the Aegean Sea or at the banks of the river Evros, he loosened his sandals while Pegasus stamped the soil, crushing reeds and hoofing away stray wood. The sun bandaged light on a sky that would not heal. Perseus, with eyes heavenward, formed the shapes of gods in the clouds, slipped his hand into the woven sack and felt the flint of primped snakes. He thought, but it is the cold weight of scales that protects. As sure as a child, he lined leaves rocked asleep by salt, water waves for a bed so as not to with sand or with hubris bruise Medusa's disunited head. One day, like a beam through skylight, we realize life is a puddle jumper of tragedy. Some stones sink fast yet still hold light. So phantom are the statues of antiquity's busted arms and toes. Mannequins too. I hum, you've lost that loving feeling and yet still hanger hope when shopping the racks of discount stores. Vinny, Vidi, Vici, when I see Vince, freeze when I see the coiled quaff of Versace's emblem. Like Sisyphus, everybody think they headed for the top. Sing started from the bottom to my reflection in the dressing room mirror. Now we hear, boy, when I remember that, oh my God, Becky, look at her butt, passes the Bechdel test. That Lawrence of Arabia runs 220 minutes without one woman ever speaking. I've eaten from the tree, the fig that sullies and seen that the meat's not always fair. I was like Perseus and Sir Mix-a-Lot, born by a riv of water, failed by pride when a brown boy tattooed with age, obsessed with fame, took his talents to Vermont to kiss trees and tap syrup from the sap. There and there he kissed. Here and here he drank. So drunk he hugged an old white woman off the ground. None of the gods I love love me. To be tipsy to leverage oneself, or so I'm told. The pulley is considered civilization's highest achievement. Icarus killed himself being lifted. So, yeah, <laughs> a lot comes into that. I think it speaks for itself, but there, there may be some stories that you like to unravel further. Well, a couple of things that went into the writing for me that was, well, one, in Iceland, there was that story that made the news of the woman who was in the search party looking for herself. And uh, I believe she was Asian. So there was a very much thing of racism that was going on here. And I was like, this is wild. They had the helicopter. And then at some point too, I guess, the woman realized that it was her they were looking for, but then she was also embarrassed and she didn't want to uh, say anything. You know, I made a joke to myself. I was like, man, it, if that's not a perfect metaphor for existentialism and looking for yourself, 
I was like, I don't know what is. And so that poem sort of works to that. And there's so many illusions in this poem between like living in New York and pop culture and Greek myth and then my own sort of stuff that I put in there that you can't tell if it's illusion or that I just make it up, you know, which many of them I did. That joke of the cow and then Moses and and then also I'm sober. I've been sober and may I have six years of sobriety. So there's also like that culmination of like for me, the point of drinking too much and realizing, oh, I have to make a stop and that's at the end of the poem as well. And so I wanted to write a big poem. I wanted to write something that was big and really sweeping yet lyric. So it was really invested in the ear while trying to juggle these philosophical and ideas, you know, but also then in the background, there's a little bit of Elliot and love song is an allusion to the love song day off of fruit rock, you know, and also love song by the German poet. uh, Oh, yes, yes, exactly. And so like there's that in there too. Yeah, we could sit on this metaphor of how many of those are looking for ourselves and don't know what we're lost. I just want I think I meet a number and maybe at times too. I don't know. Maybe that's just what helps us like go through life because we don't know we're lost. It's a coping mechanism. But um but I just it's interesting. Congratulations on your six years of sobriety. Thank you. And and just wondering how how do you feel or maybe it's it's hard to have that perspective but it's a different perspective and you're a father of young children and Mm -hmm. how does that you know change things with them with your writing you know I have four children so I have two older and two younger and so you became a um, father when you were very young too yeah when I was 17 Mm -hmm. I had a son born when I was 17 and so you know the younger kids don't even know me as a drinker and the younger ones, they have an idea of it, but it's a little bit different. And so I think for me, fatherhood is very, like just as much as education has changed me, just the process of, as I said earlier, there isn't, for me, it's always process over results. You know what I mean? If you have a good process, then your results, you live with how, how they shake out. But if your process is sound more times than not, you know, which is also like, say like, again, I, as I said earlier, an alley like a basketball thing. And like, I play basketball a lot uh, and I have a good portion of my life for, for sports. And uh, sometimes with your jump shot, the form, as long as your form is good, you're going to miss shots. You're not, you can't hit every shot. It's not like that. But as long as your form, you continue to shoot the right way and your base is set and you're ready to shoot, that's good. That's where you want to be. It's when you're flinging out your elbow or you're shooting from your palm or your feet aren't set and you're off balance. That's where the process is. And that's totally a metaphor for life. When you're out of control or you're emotionally or intellectually or psychologically not balanced, to use the basketball term, when one of them you're you're leaning on too heavily, it becomes a problem. And for me, like, listen, this is why I'm sober. I am not great at balance. <laughs> like, I'm just not great at balance. <laughs> I'm an all in sort of person, all or nothing. And, you know, once I get going, I can commit and I work really hard. But like that balance is something that I have to really struggle with. And so like, and that goes back again, this is all part of the voice. All these ideas are integral to who I am as a person. And, you know, it's the balancing 
of high culture, low culture, of all these things, of the syntactical various forms, uh, and trying to incorporate as much as I can. You know, I really seek balance. It's something that I really, that I, that I try hard to, and more successfully as, you know, as I get older, which plays into being a father and all of that stuff. And do you have a poem from your forthcoming collection that maybe is about balance or fatherhood or just some of these things that you've been discussing? Yeah, I do. I'm trying to, I was thinking about that. And I was like, do I read something that I haven't published or something that I have? I think I might read something I have published because I like this poem. I mean, I like, you know, obviously everyone likes all of their poems, but this one is, so my friend Matthew Olsman asked me to write a poem for him. It's one that can be put into his book. So my joke was like, I was like, wait, Matthew, uh, I'm going to get to feature like Drake on one of your, in your book. He's like, yeah, man, uh, I may have a couple people. It's, it's an epistolary book. And so like all of them are written letters. So he's like, just write a letter, write a letter to me, write about whatever you want. So I wrote it for him. And I also, Matthew Olsen's partner is Vibe Francis. They're both poets. They're both phenomenal poets. So I wrote them both a letter uh, because I love them dearly. They're great friends. So uh, that's part of the reason I was like, oh, share it because of, or read this one because I love both of them. An alluded to letter from DTM for Matthew Olsman and Vivi Francis concerning love, redemption, and the TV show Empire might not be the most August of openings. But like hypocrisy in this great falling hegemony, it's all I got. Besides, what's history but a conversation we're born into without context? And what is society but three friends who keep dipping into the DMs from a group text? Oh, America, our own onomastic study of the sacredness attribution where the most valid ID states, I am Erica in glittery pink hearts, the hologram hinting at the fact that this card holder has a dogmatic top 40 devotion, only eats organic granola and raises strays humanely. It's easy to be angry when the constitution starts for some we the people and begins for others will see you people some can't start a sentence without to be fair this is where if i were a white poet i'd be ironic especially if i had in the stevens vernacular a mind of winter which is a generous manner of saying said poets emotionally snowed in it's still socially unacceptable in my community to admit predispositions toward depression. In part because we think sadness is bougie. I sure as pig believed that I was too broke to be depressed. Machismo culture means, Matthew, that we never needed any other emotion than power, anything but anger was middling that I never had the courage to be anything but mean to say, hey, friend, I see your achievement. Hey, friend, I see your achievement. Hyperbole shades in what we are afraid to say. 
in my experience, when someone's really feeling you, they'll ask, you got some black in you. Don't lie. Beautiful black women ask me again what I am. Touch my hair once more. Tell me it must be the Indians in me. Tell me otra vez while holding my ears, while I look up at you. Boy, for not having lips, you sure can kiss. Or as Lorca, that supreme sommelier of sensuousness, retasted. Tierra de sombra come mi boca. Inceptive beauty, what on sturdy earth have you not already given? Skin can't be the night whitened by, the, by a moonish Newtonian consciousness. Loneliness has steeples. We up in church yet, Vivi? And here is where if I were a white poet, I'd say black women are saving the world. Everywhere in panels on the praxis of eudaimonia, allies are being taken with the Holy Ghost. Some of the poorest poets swear by their craft. That's craft with a K. A, politics, perfection, beauty, were never white aesthetics. Despite this, pimps put white girls out during the day, black girls at night. Rachel Dolezal went on the nightly news and televised us with falsehoods, darkened us all, but she probably understood Lewis Simpson best, who said, every aesthetic statement is a defense of one's own. So when I say, I love you, what I mean is, I love what I am, but especially, maybe more so, what I've never been. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's actually really funny because one of the poems that I remember reading that really got me into poetry is Matthew Olsman's Mountain Dew Commercial Disguise oh, as a poem. And I think poem. that, yeah, and the epistolary nature of your poem and the camaraderie and the love and the insider perspective that you share, that kind of point of view is just really striking. And I love how I saw the parallels and you were talking about how you're close with Olsman and his wife as well. So just like hearing the personal story behind all these poems is just really cool. Yeah. And, you know, we, we are really good friends. And I, like I said, I love them both. And that balance, that, that idea of balance plays in there too. And you have Matthew ad- identifies as Asian, myself who identifies as Latinx and Vibe who identifies identifies as African-American and we have this triangulation of identity of the American experience that happens, you know, and uh, with our various other nodes of identity that we bring, you know, with this, there's obviously we all remember who Rachel Dolezal is, right? You know, the scholar who is like, she's still out there, I think, I believe, they being like, you know, I'm black and no matter what. And even I'm trying to really play with the idea of what is black and white in, in this home anyways it's not really it's just as strictly it's like a skin color sort of idea but the ideas of black and white and darkness and light and knowledge and ignorance that are equated with all of this and is always trying to be interesting with the diction and and rambling with the syntax and ear these last i think it's been said so many times these last few years i 
I think we have been reflecting on a lot, you know, what the different mm-hmm. American experiences. Uh, we yeah. don't have to go too deep into the presidency that we've just come through. <laughs> we're, still, <laughs> we're still dealing with all these different crises, but it's certainly yeah. made us reflect and redefine. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most interesting things about this time right now. And also, too, I think the dominant perspective, our, our idea has to change about what that dominant perspective is as well. And at some point, we have to include the American identity as part of the dominant perspective. From an American's perspective, the world is America. And what is American is the sort of sense of right and what our values are the dominant values often, or at least our perspective is that it is the dominant values. And I think that has to change as well. And I think that we're beginning to see the steps of that, but how it comes about and how it is challenged is the part that I'm always interested in. I used to be worried about it and do a lot much much more hand-wringing about, I was like, okay, listen, I want to chant. I felt like I think I wanted to control in my minor way, okay, not in the national level, but like my control the discourses around me about say identity or race or gender or sexual like be like okay we need to talk about all this and let's challenge it and break it down but also keep it true to a certain amount of of intellectual rigorousness and now I sort of like you know that's bullshit you can't do that like there's no real way of challenging these these hierarchies or these structures you have to sort of allow people to do what they're going to do and and there are going to be people that conflate complicated ideas but at the end it'll all settle and you have to and you have to sort of believe that we as a society and as a group will really come to a place that not only challenges and breaks these things down but do so in a satisfactory manner and I find that to be the hardest part with all of this is to trust people to do it in a way that I think is not harmful to us all because I, when I see it how it sometimes plays out it, it doesn't always play out in a way that I think is beneficial to everyone. I think it's sometimes we, you know, if anything, what the last few years have taught me is that I might think I'm, that it should go this way and it goes this way and it all sort of meets, right? And it's the end. So I think sometimes that's when I say process over results. It's like, well, maybe, you know, my process isn't necessarily need to be what someone else's process. Could you describe that a little bit more about what, processes or approaches that weren't mm-hmm. necessarily beneficial uh in what manner writing emotionally psychologically like you were talking about yeah. approaches to like i guess diversification or inclusion or making yeah. sure everyone is heard yeah. maybe well, i i think that sometimes that like when we we go through these processes and especially in light of say something like twitter right and i feel that there's a lot of performative i think that before i was so focused on like these performative resistance acts. Like I was like, man, I don't feel that these are helpful to the larger struggle. And the the, the performativity of it all bothered me. And I was like, I want real change. And I mean, I grew up idolizing people like the Zapatistas, the EZLN, and like Subcomandante Marcos, where this dude is like a, so the stories go, and I apologize if I'm messing up the backstory a little bit, but like, you know, he had a comfortable life, was a college professor in Mexico, and pushed that aside so that he could become a revolutionary and go into the mountains and into the states of Mexico that needed change and to fight. Now, the Zapatistas did very little of like 
gunfighting besides one like battle. But I mean, but that's not the point to me. The point is the commitment to revolution in a way that was tangible and real. And sometimes I would see things like the Twitter revolutions happening as not tangible and very self-serving. And that's the part that bothers me, the self-serving of it while fronting that it's for everyone else. And I, I had a problem with that. And I had a problem. I was like, man, and I, and I really struggled with how we can do that because I saw it on the right and I saw it on the left. And that was the problem. Like I was like, it's on my side. When it's on the right, then I'm like, ah, pfft, whatever. What do you, you, that's what I expect. But then when I saw it on the left and I was like, you know, oh man, it frustrated me. But then I also, as I said, I came to realize that how one enacts change isn't always the same. And sometimes the pressing and going so far, like say with cancel culture, sometimes we need to really push so that people get the idea of like, oh, like people are serious and they want change, you know, because patriarchal thinking and the patriarchy as a dominant mode of thinking is detrimental to our society. If you can't see that or you can't empathize with those that are being oppressed, there has to be another way to force change or at least stimulate change, we should say. You know what I mean? Because I don't think you can force change, but you can stimulate change and get people to start to think about things. Some people, they, they're not going to change, you know. Does that clear up what I was thinking? Yeah, it, but it's very hard. It's very hard to know. It's very hard to, it's a very complex. So I'm glad that you replied to it yeah. uh, with complexity. We need to have uh, nuance in our thinking. And it's so true. We can't, you can't force change. But one way is you can introduce a uh, multiplicity of voices through poetry, through music. And then that's like, exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I mean, my greater goal, I'm going to speak very frankly. I don't give a shit who wins the Pulitzer. I don't give a shit if it's black, brown, I mean, I do and I don't, you know what I mean? My biggest thing is I want multi, what you said, multiplicity of voices and there to be a, to be more representation, but sustained representation. What I don't want is the performative giving of like, oh, we haven't given it to a Mexican, so we got to give it to a Latino, you know, like just the performative giving of sometimes. And these things happen and, and they're institutions and they're doing their best. You have to assume. And so for me, it's not these short-term goals. It's long-term goals. It's the sustained place for various voices in the American experience. Not the, not the short-term goals, but the long-term goals. So that we have in our MFA programs, funding and avenues for people of color, for people on the periphery, for various genders, for all of, for everyone that has had a difficulty in making it through this, the system and financial rigors of what it takes to become a writer. For myself, it was very difficult. Like I did not financially, I was not financially in a place where I should have become a writer. Like, you know, I'm a first generation college student. My parents aren't college educated and that's not necessarily someone who becomes a writer. And so for me, I see the systems and I see all of the pitfalls of where myself and others could have or did fall through. And I want to prevent that. And that is way more important to me. And that is not performative for me. To me, that's more behind the scenes work, like creating avenues for that students and people can grow and become sustained writers versus like, oh, let's make sure that the NEA gives this amount to that. And I think that those are important. I just don't think that they're the most important in that end. This has changed. Like I said, it might, my thinking is more complex now in, in that that like I see both of them and before I was like man I don't care so much as that, as that and I still don't 
because to me those are that's the star on top of the christmas tree yeah that's yeah not just one not that just the show the example i think we're really moving beyond that but yeah it can't yeah. it, it can't be good when one is t- supposed to stand in for a whole yeah. generation or country part of what has changed my thinking is that i see that like where people were pushing for all of these things and i was pushing for them too but i was like this is not part it's a whole part of the the change that that can happen and all of it are necessary so that's the one thing that I couldn't say. I'm like, well, we're focusing way too much on this. And again, people's attention is limited and you can only focus on so much. Talking about real change and like real representation and just yeah. the word more and like having more Hispanic writers, more Asian writers, more Black writers mm-hmm. into, into like the mainstream. I thought about your guest editor role for Poem A Day um, mm-hmm. last September, October of 2020. I honestly have conflicting feelings about, you know, like Black History Month, Hispanic Mm -hmm. Heritage Month, because I know Mm -hmm. it's like important. But at the same time, sometimes it's tokenized. And like you said, it feels formative and superficial. But for Poem Day, I admired the wide ranging selection and voices of all the different poems you curated. In the sense of Hispanic Heritage Month, it could be performative if someone looked at it very cynically, but what arose from like your curation and like all the poems and all the poets that I got to know was just real change, at least in my life. And I think for a small part, it was really transformative. Well, thank you. I'm really glad that you, that you saw some value in it. And I mean, I agree with you. And so I think this is the thing. Okay. And this part has helped change my thinking about this stuff as well. It's like an institution. Now I know the people at the academy and they, they're really committed to change and making it happen. But say, you know, some that's not always going to be the case. And, and some institutions will present you with an opportunity. It doesn't matter what their intentions are. It's your intentions and how you can sculpt it and it to be and so with me they asked me to guest edit and i was like okay you know we we get how how it goes and you want to have representation and all of that and there is a certain level of performativity that accompanies that and i was like how can i still spin it on his head and i was like well i'm gonna do all latinx poets that's it and while i I agree with you that could be totally performative. I was like, I'm going to try to pick a wide ranging poets you may never have heard of, poets you are like, oh, wow, that's great. People that had read for Obama and people that don't even have a book yet could go back to back, you know what I mean? And so like, I thought that was a unique opportunity. And so when I look to, when I edit or it's always craft and this idea of what the poem is first, and then how can I balance them out with the identities and the issues and all of the other stuff? Like that's always the first thing. And that's why I say as well, it's about the long-term goals and that's creating great writers of, of all sorts and all nodes of identity. That's what to me is important. And it's not only important for the sense of diversification. It also is important for the art of poetry because it's through these various different voices and perspectives that we're going to not only get to know each other, but it's going to create vitality within the craft and within the art of poetry. One that's not easily encapsulated. So when my first book came out, Hustle, 
part of the reason people were even interested in it. It was in like, you know, that poem starts with me trying to steal a car and shoot somebody. And it was these gang narratives that were in it from Southern California. So between all the movies and everything like that, people have seen like Boys in the Hood and, and that sort of stuff. So they have an idea of it. But to like sort of bring that into poetry, that wasn't something that was done all of the time. And so that very working class put in with the sort of aesthetics of poems because I was traditionally trained, you know, and in, in the canonical aesthetic of poetry. I think that these sort of like balance each other out and they work towards something. And so like that is how I try to take like my editing or when I'm, when I'm working with a student or that sort of like, you know, it's like how can I put all of these? What can make your voice interesting? How can you distinguish yourself? You know, and how can you create a voice that will last? Because that's ultimately what we're trying to do. You want to write a poem that's going to connect with people, but not just for the moment, for a long time. And that's part of that's part of my mission. That's part of like what I want to do as a poet. I think it's very important. It's a vocational call. Well, you're a great mentor and you're a teacher uh, to uh, young poets, young writers. Mm. And who? just tell us a little bit about your teaching process. You, you spoke about a mm. bit and, and the teachers who are important for you. And maybe not just teachers within the school environment, but learning from other writers or. Yeah, people. well, I've had three mentors, poets, older poets in my life. My first was Glover Davis. Uh, my second is Sandra Alcosser. And my third was Tony Hoagland. And then I've had friendships or teachers with so many other poets throughout. And I'm so, I'm, I learn from my friends all the time and we talk and via our conversations. So that's always been, I, mentorship is a big part of, um, I feel very strongly about mentorship. I forgot who the basketball coach was. Was it um, Wooden, John Wooden that said, they won't care about what you know until they know that you care about them. And I feel like for a professor or a mentor, it's the same thing. Many times people don't really care about what you know as much as that you're invested in them, particularly as a student. Because if you're not, even if you know a lot, you're just sort of, you know, it's hard to take that sort of the tough criticism that comes with being honest with a student, you know, and the the, the love that, that you have to have. And I, I think I believe very much in being honest with, you know, and, and there are many various ways of how one can be honest and how you couch it. But like, you can encourage yet say, ah, it's not there yet. That's difficult. I believe very much, again, it's that balance and, and having it both. Not just being like placating your students um, because that's something, you know, the pressures and the rigor of a university or a college and an institution that, you know, everybody wants their students to be happy and, and everyone to be in the English department. And, you know, part of that sometimes can be making your students happy and, and sometimes telling people, you know, like, oh, this is work, but here are the limitations of what you're doing is necessarily going to make someone happy. Folks just want to hear, this is fucking awesome. You're great, you know? And it's like, well, this is very good, but here could be the possible limitations to what you're doing. You know, everybody, whatever whatever voice you're incorporating or whatever style you're trying, everything has limitations. You know, you have to just be aware of what are the strengths and what are the limitations. Sometimes we don't want to be aware of, of what our limitations are. We just want to hear the strengths part. No, I think that that's so true. I mean, this is also a, like a mentorship project. It's, it's you, you're mentoring through these interviews. And so it's interesting, but I find you're going back to your saying, teaching, whatever, giving them something tangible and real and seeing yep. what's the potential in it. Because it may already be great or, or very good, but you can, you yep. know, there's always something more that you can get. 
just in closing, because it's something that's been on all of our minds and we have a, mm-hmm. a, a parallel projects to do with the environment. And we're, we're yeah. just thinking about our systems. We've got a bunch of systems that we need to correct and make better. So as you reflect on this and you think about the future, you know, when you think about what's the importance of the arts or how we might change some of these systems, um, you know, what would be your, your message to young people going forward? Well, I, I think when it comes to systems, systems will always inherently be flawed because there's no such thing as a perfect system. And and what and, and if a system is perfect one day, it will not be it not necessarily be perfect the next day. Um, so we have to understand that and and you know how we can balance um, the impatience that is necessary to change with the necessary time that it takes to change, and how one can have patience. I think that is you know finding that that balance of being aggressive, but patient um, when it comes to social change is very important. Um, I think that's, that's necessary. And for your own sanity, like for your own emotional well-being, you know, I mean? like it's very difficult to run through the whole world or the whole, your whole time angry. I've done that for a long time or I did it for a long time. I try not to, any, uh, but also keeping a certain amount of like fire and, you know, what they with yourself, you know, like that the necessity to do that. So we really look forward to uh, your forthcoming collection. I know it's uh, we'll we'll post it when you have it. We're you're still <laughs> discussing the title, so um, but yeah. uh, we. I just want to thank you for sharing your fuerte, your fire, your commitment, uh, the truth, the your music and poetry. Um, thank you uh, for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Yu Young Lee with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your own creative works, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.